Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. I cared about the way you grit your teeth when you beat me for not being perfect. I cared about girls at school seeing my welts. I cared about you. Days and often hours before you beat me, you touched me so gently. You told me you loved me. You called me your best friend. You forgave me for losing the keys to the house. You coated the ashy cracks in my face with Vaseline slick palms. You used your nubby thumbs wet with saliva to clean the sleep out of my eyes. You make me feel like the most beautiful black boy in the history of Mississippi until you didn't. That's K.S.A. Lehman reading a passage from his masterful memoir, Heavy, a memoir that has been receiving just about every accolade a book can get. I sat down with K.S.A. on a chilly summer morning in the mountains at the Aspen Ideas Festival. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. Tell me about the landscape of your childhood. Whoa, you start big, huh? <laughs> the landscape of my childhood. So that's a great question. You know, my, my parents were 19 to 20 when I was born on the campus of Jackson State University. My mom claims the first time she had sex, she got pregnant. 
my father claims the first time he had sex, they got pregnant. And then they went on to go to grad school at University of Wisconsin. And when they went there, I was there for a little bit, but I went to stay with my grandmother in a rural black town, majority black town called Forest, Mississippi. And then when my mother and my parents, my father got separated, my mother moved to Jackson. And then I came up from Forest, Mississippi to stay with her in Jackson around 80. So I was like six or seven. Um, so my, like my early, early childhood was like partially in Jackson, a little taste in Wisconsin. And most of my memories of my childhood are in Forest, Mississippi, partially because of my grandmother. I mean, the landscape was kind of cool, but my grandmother was just, you know, complicated. She was just really good at loving, really good at reckoning, really good at keeping secrets. Um, so for me, she is my she is the landscape of my childhood. And then when, when my mom came and got me, we moved to Jackson. Um, you know, she was very young, single. So, you know, I watched her, the young black woman in Mississippi, go through what a lot of young black single women in Mississippi go through. Lots of heartbreak, lots of economic precarity. Uh, we moved around a lot. The only thing that was actually solid was just her pushing books and writing on me and disciplining me if I didn't do with the books and writing what she wanted to. So my landscape is like, it's filled with grandma isms is filled with my mom pushing education i don't really have any memories of my father being there i know he was there you know the one memory i do have is that he froze a snowball when we lived in wisconsin for a little while and he broke it back out in the summer we had a snowball fight that's the only memory i have of my father before i was eight but he was there i just don't remember him unless pictures trigger some memory but i don't know if that's make-believe or actual and then the rest of my sort of childhood is just living with mama and just trying to watch her go from like really a girl to a young woman to a to a woman and watch her teach while I was just trying to do what most kids are trying to do, you know, figure out life, deal with puberty, figure out my feelings for my mother. We were so tight. I was a big boy. People always thought that was my sister. Men would always come up to me and ask me for my sister's numbers. I would get upset about that. Um, but yeah, we were very close, very intimate. We slept in the same bed for a long time. Do you know what I'm saying? And and I think that sort of heightened a lot of the things that came post. Kiese's mother is an academic, a college professor. She's consumed with elevating Kiese and protecting him. She insists that he speaks proper English, the king's English, because that's how educated people, white people, speak She's not just Kiese's mom. She's his teacher. She gives him assignments to write papers. For instance, one about the politicians Benjamin Franklin Wade and Thaddeus Stevens. And another to read the first chapter of William Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom, and then imitate Faulkner's style. And Kiese knows he'd better complete those assignments in a timely manner, or else. (laughs) It's so interesting. I have to laugh. I always have to laugh before I talk about that, right? Like, it's not even, it's just, it's just bodily. You know, when I was really young and she gave me lots of assignments, if I got them wrong, she'd sit down with me and we would revise. We'd get it right. Um, but when, when, when she moved back to Jackson for a few years and met a man that she would fall in love with, who's a really powerful man in my city, uh, the or else's became a lot more physical and a lot more emotionally abrasive. I think sometimes we make this distinction between physical abuse and emotional abuse, but I don't, I've got lots of weapons in my life and they were all emotional in addition to being physical. 
And and when people have emotionally abused me or if I've been emotionally abusive to people, I've seen the physical manifestations of it. So I'm saying, yeah, there's a lot of physical abuse, there's emotional abuse. And some of it had to do was because she was afraid that if I didn't master what she called a King's English, the white people, white police, white teachers, whatever, would go harder on me. That was definitely something she believed. She got that from my grandma. And then there was just a lot of like, my life is in fucking shambles. Like this dude is terrorizing me. I cannot effectively terrorize him. I go home to this big black boy who was my son, who I love more than anybody in the world. He's kind of hard-headed. He's not doing what I want him to do. And, you know, I don't want to mythologize the beatings or the whippings. I don't have children. Part of the reason I don't have children is because I, I'm afraid. I don't want to punish my children. Never, ever, ever would put my hands on my kids. But I just know there's a lot of different ways to abuse people other than that. And so my mother, she just started to, like, you know, beat me a lot. Um, for things that she said I was doing wrong. But also, when she and her partner got into it, I just knew I was going to get it, you know? And and sometimes it was because I didn't do my homework. Sometimes it would be like, Key, when I was away, I noticed that my bed wasn't made up. Did you get in my bed? Were you in the bed with the babysitter? And this was actually before I was in bed with the babysitter. And I was like, no, I wasn't in bed with the babysitter, mama. Yes, you were. But I realized early that my mom had a hard time with her partner I was going to get it somehow or another. She was going to take it out on me. And and then after I got it, she was going to apologize. She was going to hold me tight. We were going to, she was going to, you know, and that, I always, and I tell her that, I said this in the book, that was the confusing part because I loved her more than anything in the world. That was my first teacher, my best friend, anything you can imagine, you know what I'm saying? And I just was like, man, I would never, ever strike my mother. And at that point, I was as big as she was. And then I was like, I don't really want to hurt my mom at all at that point. But when I, you know, when I got to high school, like most high schoolers, I was like, okay, I'm going to get you back by doing stuff like trying to have sex with my girlfriend in her bed when she wasn't there, you know, breaking into the house, getting terrible grades, like all of these things that I know would hurt her without physically. And I would never cuss out anything, but you know, I was trying to hurt her. I was trying to retaliate for what I felt was like unfair treatment and, I want to be held accountable for that, too. You know what I'm saying? Not just as I'm not saying it's the same sort of abusiveness, but I was definitely trying to hurt my mom without touching her. Do you think you knew that then or do you know it now? I mean, I want to say I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew what I was doing. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, <laughs> there's so many, see, you know, there's so many. I mean, this is all families. There's so many secrets, but my mother and I never talked about sex. And she had a hard time, like, keeping money. So we were the type of family who were like, we'd have cable TV one month out of the year. <laughs> and then she wouldn't pay the bill. And then the shit would be gone, right? But when we had it, I remember one time she caught me. I don't know if you remember this, but you could, if you if you did not have Cinemax and you turned to Cinemax, it would be all blurry. Do you know what I'm saying? Cinemax. So you could kind of make out naked people in there. So one time she saw me watching Cinemax, really. I mean, it wasn't, you couldn't see anything. She was like, what are you watching? Keep... I'm like, nothing. And then she kind of had a sort of conversation with me about pornography. And I was like, oh, my mama doesn't like me to watch naked things. So, <laughs> right? So we didn't have a VCR. I borrowed my, my friend's VCR. His father had all these porn tapes. I brought them to my house, snug them in my room, and watched something that night. But I left it there in my room. Of course I wanted her to see it. And when I got home, I got it. Do you know what I'm saying? Kiese changes schools in middle school and ends up one of a small number of black students in a predominantly white school. 
Well, we knew. I mean, you know, we, we'd never gone to school with white kids before. And in the Mississippi, you know, whiteness, uh, a particular kind of whiteness is pervasive. And we all had televisions and we went to the movies. So, you know, we weren't unfamiliar with whiteness and white people. We were we were unfamiliar with real white people because we didn't have any contact with real white folk. You know, we knew <laughs> Jack Tripper and Laverne and Shirley and all the cartoons you can imagine. It isn't a happy situation, and Kiese's grades start falling. His mother gets his report card and becomes physically abusive. But she only strikes him in places on his body where bruises won't be seen. This is something Kiese and his friends, the other black students, have in common. They talk openly with each other about the difference between getting a whooping, getting a beating, and getting beaten the fuck up. I mean, I wasn't the only kid who who went from getting those beatings, like, where you could come to school and you could see the welts on people's bodies. And again, my culture, and I think American culture generally, even though it doesn't want to admit it, like, we use humor to kind of soothe, right? So back when my other school, we would come to school, and we'd be like, yo, you got a weapon this morning? You know, like, laughing. And at St. Richard, the school I went to, if I acted up, or my mom thought I acted up, you know, she would get me in places... It's complicated because we also had to wear uniforms. So, you know, there were long sleeve shirts and stuff like that. But she definitely would not get me on my neck. You know, she wouldn't get me anywhere in my face because she didn't want those white people to think to pathologize her and us. And she didn't want them to be like, oh, look at these poor black kids coming to school with welts on their bodies." And that happened to me. And that was and that happened to a lot of people. But what's important is that. You know, by eighth grade, you know, I played a lot of sports. So I was like, at eighth grade, I was like 5'10", 205, 5'11", 205. My mom was 5'4", 100. So I just think there's something very, very, very unspoken and intimate about the ways. I don't know how much this has to do with race either, but like sometimes smaller parents, you know, beat up on, on bigger kids. And for me, like I was bigger than her partner too, you know, so she was... Part of me thinks she thought she could not hurt me. That's what I want to believe, that she was hitting me like that because she thought I was so big and she couldn't hurt me. But I actually know that's not true because I let her know early on that it did hurt. But then after a while, it stopped hurting. And it stopped hurting because I was so angry. She tried to hit me. I just catch the belt. Just look at her. She keep on doing I just catch the belt. And, you know, one point I caught it and I threw it. And I looked at her in a way for the first time in my life where I was like, nah. It's not going to happen again. I was never going to touch my mom. Yeah. But I just wanted her to know that, like, you know, I'm, you're not just going to beat me. Right. We're done. Yeah, I mean, I'm done. Yeah, I'm done right. letting you beat me. Right. Right. You know, you can, you can keep trying to beat me, but it's not going to work anymore. You know, it strikes me as you're talking about this, that there was something, that there's like an element of it that was like ritual. Like, Absolutely ritual. Because you each had these different roles to play and, and both were controlled. Like, your mom was controlled in that she didn't hit certain parts of your body. She wasn't out of control. She knew. It's so profoundly complicated because in the dynamic between Kiese and his mom, she's acting out of a kind of maternal terror. But that maternal terror actually terrorizes her son. She knows what can happen to young black men. And so she tries to teach Kiese to write and learn and think his way toward protection. But protection isn't possible. So she beats him. It makes all kinds of sense and no kinds of sense. Something he explores in his book, Heavy. I think this story is much more complicated, right, than 
young black mother beats big black son big black son becomes a writer and writes about the beatings right the book is about much more than that but the, but, but, the, but the odd part about it is that my mom's fear was that that the nation and my state white supremacy white power manifested in my state and the nation would harm me in ways that she could never and she wanted to protect me like I grew up in that era where police officers would come to your school they'd be called officer friendly they'd bring up sometimes the biggest kid in the school make an example of him if you don't do right this is how we're gonna treat you okay fine but you know I had a lot of problems in high school I didn't but I, drinking wasn't one of my problems smoking wasn't one of my problems I saw how addiction ravaged my family I wasn't about to do that but cops still jacked me up saying I had crack cops still would be like I saw you throw crack out of a window you know what I'm saying Cops would still, like, have me embarrassed out on the side of the road, handcuffed in front of people. And I know how people think. People drive by, they see a big black boy in handcuffs, they're going to be like, oh, that motherfucker did something wrong. Often. I never, I mean, I'm not trying, I mean, I am not somebody who pleads innocent. I'm not innocent. But I am definitely innocent of ever doing anything a police officer said I did. But that didn't stop me from calling them nigga. That didn't stop them from putting guns to my face, guns to my head, several times before I was 18 years old. This reminds me of something Kiese's mother says to him before he starts school at St. Richard's. Here's Kiese. I sat in the principal's office thinking about what you told me the day before we started St. Richard. Be twice as excellent and be twice as careful from this point on, you said. Everything you thought you knew changes tomorrow. Being twice as excellent as white folk will get you half of what they get. Being anything less will get you hell. I assume we were already twice as excellent as the white kids at St. Richard's, precisely because their library looked like a cathedral, and ours was an old trailer on cinder blocks. I thought you should have told me to be twice as excellent as you, my grandmama, since y'all were the most excellent people I knew. I got kicked out of school for taking a library book out of the library, and I just think it's interesting because my mom's belief was that, like, if you immerse yourself in books... You can protect yourself from them. And what I learned, like, 18, 19, is that sometimes, sometimes the appearance of being, like, well-read or uppity or whatever to police officers or white folk who don't have your best interests at heart would make them punish you more. You know, I got, I got kicked out of school, literally, for taking a library book out of the library that I paid to go to and taking it back. It was all on the news, so it embarrassed my grandmama because it looked like her grandson got kicked out of school for theft. That was the most painful thing to happen to my family at the time because it was so public. And it was, and I didn't do, I didn't, I took a library book and I brought it back. You see what I'm saying? So my point is, she was right that these people were going to do whatever they could to harm and hurt me and people who look like me. But she was wrong in that, like the beatings would help. Because when that shit happened to me, what I wanted to do was fight them. I wanted to, I wanted to physically fight them. When you put handcuffs on me, I'm going to try to, I am going to try to fight back and that's going to make it worse. Do you see what I'm saying? Because I was taught that, like, you do fight. You fight. You fight when people do things wrong to you. Fight. You can't fight the police if you, unless you have guns. I didn't have guns. We're going to take a short break. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. 
Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Kiese's mom tries hard to control the unruly son she loves so much pushing him to read, write, speak, quote-unquote, properly. But then there's another way she tries to control him, having to do with food, what and how much he eats. My mama was somebody who, just like as adamant as she was that I read all these books, she was equally adamant that I don't eat. Um, Not that I starve myself, but, like, I only eat shit like asparagus. And, I mean, when I'm, like, between 8 and 14 years old, asparagus and shit like Brussels sprouts and... Her money was real weird, too, so she would buy, like, all this bougie food we really couldn't afford at the beginning of the month. 
olives and fucking pumpernickel bread. Like, no 12-year-old. I didn't know. I didn't know a 12-year-old wanted to eat that kind of shit. And I definitely didn't want to eat that. Um, but it signified the same thing as the King's English. Absolutely. She really believed that if you ate like white people, read like white people, walked like white people, you could protect yourself from white people. But she raised a kid who was like sort of curious. You know, I always just I was like, Mom, look at Dr. King. Like they blew his damn head off damn near. And he was, he dressed well. He had like a beautiful Southern twang, but he was one of the most eloquent speakers ever, right? Look at you, mama. Like you do speak the King's English in public and I can see you suffering. So this sort of like deprivation in the hopes that the deprivation will make you less scary. (laughs) I don't know, maybe it works, but it didn't work for me. So when I left my mama's house, partially because the food she she did have in the house if we had food was not it was kind of like not gross it was kind of gross you know what i'm saying to me and i go to my friend's house they had <laughs> and they'd have you know golden grams and like all kind of like those little frozen hamburgers in the box you could sizzling and all that so i would just i just i just ate and ate and ate whenever i left the house my grandmother who cooked a lot of healthy food because she had a massive garden but she also like liked to cook pies and cakes and she encouraged me to eat and I never heard the word fat in her house from her do you know what I'm saying so I'm going to say yes I was trying to protect myself but also part of me was trying to push back against my mom's like I think easy mode of discipline which was like a kind of like deprivation there's a way in which I think certain things lodge in the body Mm -hmm. right like I have a long time yoga practice and Mm -hmm. one of the things that the yogis will say is that certain emotional states actually live in the body. Like mm-hmm. if you do like a, a hip opening pose, uh, eventually if you stay in it long enough, grief will like start to rise to the surface. You know, you'll mm. actually start to cry. I mean, I've experienced like the ways wow. in which certain emotional states kind of sit uh, dormant, you know, but like they're stories, they're complete the yogis call them samsaras, which also translates as scar, yeah. interestingly. Yeah. Like they, they live within us. And I think when we are driven or there's a kind of undercurrent of shame that most of us experience to some degree or another, mm-hmm. whether we're in touch with it or not, right. that is kind of like the river beneath, you know, sort of our, our like daily existence. It manifests itself in some way or another in how we feel about our bodies. Yes. Absolutely. And in your case, the becoming bigger and the way that on the one hand, it sort of afforded you a certain kind of weight, you know, of protection, you know, and on the other hand, seemed to also have go along with it a not feeling great about your body or feeling like, you know, girls wouldn't want to be with you because of your body. Yeah. Um, or, or or that they would cuz they were scared. Mm. Which was I mean and, and there's no there's no evidence to substantiate it, but that's what I felt. Do you know what I mean? Like even to this day, I mean, I was in an interview and I said this before so I guess I can say it here. It's just like, you know, I'm I never felt comfortable even when we would play like these games when we were like 8, 9, 10. It was called hide. I talk about this in the book. Hide and go get it. You go, you hide. And then whoever is a person that's going, he has to come find people. And the whole point is that, like, young people are in these closets or hallways and it's dark and you get to touch people. I was just always afraid to touch anybody. One, because I was just bigger. And but I wasn't afraid to want to be touched. But, you know, when I started to get older and hit puberty, 
like most people, like, you know, desire was a thing, but I just never felt comfortable. Um, what did they used to call it? Making a move or passing a note. Did you like me? Circle yes or no. Like, you know, none of that kind of shit. It was just, I just thought that people, if, if particularly if young girls, you know, who were 12, 13, 14, 15, my age liked me at the time, I thought it was because they thought I was going to hurt them. But there's no reason for me to think that other than, I mean, there are reasons for me to think that, right? But I never had anybody be like, I thought you would hurt me if I didn't, blah, blah, blah. Well, and of course, you also equated, you know, loving and being hurt. So Kiese gets kicked out of school for theft of a book. Even with his complicated academic history, he manages to transfer from his first college, Millsaps, to Oberlin, a school that recognizes his gifts, his potential. But it's all coming at a high price. In his desire to change himself, he starts to radically change his body in unhealthy ways. At the highest in Millsaps, my first college, I was like 309 pounds. By the time I get to Oberlin, I'm 209 pounds, like the first day of school. And nobody looked at me and thought that I could ever, and I was like a very athletic 209 pounds. And then I started to lose more weight. So then I go from 209 to 199 to 189. What was the turning point? What was, what do you remember about the moment where you're like, I'm now going to start eating differently, exercising, and I'm going to, I'm going to lose that weight. I'm going to go in there and be this smaller person. I just wanted absolute control over my body. Because my body was in Oberlin, Ohio, because some white man decided that he didn't want me at his school. Do you see what I'm saying? And there weren't enough people around who all saw that the shit was wrong, who fought enough to make it happen. That meant like I had I needed to protect myself somehow. And so it wasn't just the eating, but my writing ritual kicked up. You know, I started writing two hours before night. I wrote three in the morning, three at night. I, re- I ran in the morning, I ran at night. And then, you know, I got sick. I got obsessed with seeing the the number go down. It felt so good. I played back, you know, I was captain of the basketball team. Uh, I weighed myself before the games. I weighed myself after the game. If I didn't lose eight pounds of water weight during the game, I'd go on the sauna and run more. I just was like, yo, I can control. And I was trying to hurt myself. Like, I'm not trying to put this on other people, but, you know, if you play any sort of athletics in college, be it D3, D2, D1, they're going to run you to death. And if you run on top of that, it's not going to be good for your body. Do you know what I'm saying? And I just wanted to be smaller. And then I just started to get all of this crazy attention from not just women, but women from queer boys, from supposed straight boys. Like people were just like, oh, my God, you look so good. And I, I, I was dysmorphic. I was like, what? You know, I still thought I looked like I looked at 300 pounds. And then one day, you know, we're looking at tape for basketball. And I saw myself on tape. And, you know, I was like, I'm not going to say I look good, but I, you know, I, I was very muscular and very lean and very fast. And I just remember sitting in that room with those my friends and just like crying in the back. Because I was just like, what the? F-? Like, you just created a body without even knowing you created a body. But at what, what cost? People just stopped treating me like I was fat. That's why I can't even imagine what it feels like for women to be treated that way because I think men get treated a lot nicer. But I just, the people stopped treating me like I was fat. So they stopped treating me like a particular kind of threat, which meant that I could do much more harm to people because they weren't, 
they weren't, they were disarmed. Because, oh, this guy's, you know what I'm saying? So that's when I started to realize that sometimes those kinds of people can do the most harm to different people. Like those really attractive, supposedly well-read people who listen. And that's who I was. I was a great, in great shape. I read a lot of books. I love to listen. And then no one would have known what was going, like what was going on, you know, inside of you. Yeah. And there's oh, this, my. there's this line in your book right around the time you get to Oberlin. I will not tell those friends what my body remembered. I will become a handsome, fine, together brother uh, with lots of secrets. There's also this line, flying and crashing were what people in our family did when we were alone, ashamed, and scared to death. Flying and crashing. You know, it's kind of what we've been talking about, too, right? It's like both, you can't fly. You can't just fly. Not okay. Not possible to just fly. Yeah. Try to find a way to crash. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm trying to embody, like, the me at that point that was, like, passing judgment on my family for being fat and for being uh, gambling addicted and for my grandmother. Like, she was a cutter. Like, she used to hurt herself. So at that point in the book, I'm saying, I'm so happy I'm not like them. While that whole chapter is about, man, it's about body dysmorphia, it's about anorexia, about bulimia. There's a recurring line in that chapter. I just love losing weight. So, you know, I, I wanted people to understand that the book was not passing judgment on my family but that's how fucked up i was like i'd gotten out of that i'm the skinny dude i'm in grad school i'm about to go teach at vassar here my grandmama is in the hospital she can't take care of herself here my mama is she can't take care of her money here my whole family is they're all you know according to doctors morbidly obese but here i am in great shape grad school got everything going on for me but i'm just trying to disappear you know just trying hard as i can to disappear but i didn't have that language so Kiese graduates from Oberlin and gets his first teaching job. His mother has instilled in him not only a sensitivity to words and language, but to teaching as a vocation. And he lands a great position at Vassar College. Now, Vassar is about as far, landscape-wise, from Jackson, Mississippi, as you can get while still staying in the United States. It's a culture I know well, a small liberal arts college in New York State's Hudson Valley, all red brick buildings, white columns, arches, and shady paths. It's here, at Vassar, that Kiese's eating disorder grows even more dangerous. You're oh. 6'1", and you're 159 pounds, yeah. and you're running, you know, dozens of miles yeah. a day. Um, every day. Checking my body fat every day. Checking your body fat. It's, at one point, it's 2%. 2% was the lowest I got. So, during those years at Vassar... There's a moment where your mother comes visits you. She's very proud of you. Yeah. You know, and which is interesting too because it's so much about what do we see when we see other people. Yeah. What she sees when she sees you at Vassar is that it all it all worked. Everything she ever wanted. It all worked. A skinny it, son. He's teaching at this elite institution. And all that disciplining all and everything disciplining. that she did. Right. What your mother sees when she sees you in Poughkeepsie is that. But of course. That's not what it is at all. Oh, no. I mean, the hard part about all of that is that some of that coincides with the Obama ascension. The interesting thing about Obama is that, like, there was no imaginative template for him before he becomes president, right? Nobody's like that. Oh, we want this guy with his African name from Chicago. He used to be community organizer, married to this beautiful black woman um, to be president. Nobody's fucking talking about that shit, right? But that's what she wanted. She wanted, She. I mean, when I say that, she wanted in terms of his body, in terms of how he speaks, in terms of 
how he manages white people. Like, we've rarely seen Obama, I think, honestly respond to some of the white terror that has been put on his back, right? And as soon as Obama got elected, she starts crying because she's like, they're going to kill him. But I'm like, mama, that's who you wanted me to be. You wanted me to be this dude. So, like, something doesn't make sense. Okay, just be safe. Do you see what I'm saying? So, life was incredible at Vassar because of my relationship with my students, you know? I get the job at Vassar when I'm almost 26. Most of my colleagues are older than my grandmama. That's no diss toward that. <laughs> That's not, I'm not trying to diss the grandmama age people. But I'm saying when you're 26 and you come in, you know, you talk about isolation and aloneness, I went there alone. And the people I had the most in common with were my students, right? And lots of those students had never been taught by a, a professor who was not white. And they definitely had been taught by like a young black person. So they, I mean, lots of the white ones did, but lots of the folks of color, particularly black students, like found safety in me, right? And I was teaching James Baldwin, which is ironic because Baldwin is always talking, teaching us we need to reckon with our past. Our past is never the past. It's always in us. I'm talking about love in all my classes. Meanwhile, I'm like, I'm literally trying to disappear. I'm literally trying to kill myself, right? And the only reason I did not is because my body stopped working. My, like my legs stopped. I could not run anymore because if I could have run, I, I would have run myself into nothingness. But my legs stopped. But the most shameful part of it to me is that while I'm teaching these creative writing courses and teaching these English lit courses and teaching these African-American lit courses to these students who listen and believe anything I say, I'm being wholly dishonest to them, wholly dishonest to them. And I just if I could do it over again, I would that's what I would do over again. I don't think I was fair to those kids. I know those kids love me and like wanted I'm not saying they wanted me to sit down and give them my whole life story but I was just lying to them all the time I just lied every I mean there's teachers a lot of teachers a lot of kids but but they expected more from me and you know those students love me they care for me um but I didn't do right by them partially because uh partially because I was sick and I needed them a lot more than I let on I didn't want to be hanging with the fucking 65 year old white dudes with the beards and shit talking about what kind of new vest they were going to wear next week. That wasn't what I was interested in. As I listen to Kiese, I can't help but think he's being too hard on himself. I've been teaching all my writing life as well, and it's a complex dance we teachers do, modeling what you can impart as a teacher. It's not as simple as you're either walking the walk or you're not. Sometimes you're trying to impart something to your students from a place of your own longing, a place of be better be better than I am right now. Let me be clear about that one, because I'm, I'm kind of talking around what I, what I really want to say. They would want to hear me say, I know what you're feeling because I've been there. And I would not, I would talk to them about a lot of things. I let them in the parts of who I was. But when they started talking about like their relationships with eating disorders, their relationships with sexual violence, their relationships with parental abuse, and they would ask me. I literally would say, you know, I don't have that experience, but I definitely hear you. I would literally lie. And part of that is because pedagogically, I wasn't sure what you, you know, like, do you give that or do you, what you don't do is lie. And what I should have done is be like, you know, I've experienced that kind of stuff too, but I'm not sure that this relationship can hold my giving that to you. So if you want to continue, and what I really should have done is like, there's a counseling center right over there. Let me hold your hand. And let's walk over there together. 
my students would come and be like, you know, like, I did this, you know? And because I wanted to be everything to them, I never was like, I don't know how to help you now, but these people do. So that's what I'm trying to say when I, I'm saying they were open to me partially because of my age, because of how I look, because of my race, because I did care. But they gave me opportunity after opportunity to talk about the stuff I talked about and heavy. And I'm not saying I should have put that on them, but I don't know if I should have lied. This is one of the things I hear again and again when it comes to family secrets. Whether it's the people who have been coming to my events for inheritance or my guests on this podcast, so often folks who have been part of a secret end up becoming secret keepers too. So Kiese is keeping his own secret, which is that he's not okay. I mean, he's really not okay. There's this way in which all of these things were tied up together for you in this really complicated stew. And then it becomes like the work of a lifetime. I mean, that's the way that I think of it is we like Hollywood endings. We like fairy tale endings. Um, We like the whole idea that there's like some kind of bright line between you know, before and after. And right. and that's something you were trying to do with your body too, right? right? Like now that's I'm 159 right. pounds, right. nothing's going to touch me. <laughs> right. And meanwhile, you're doing the same exact thing. It just looked different on the outside. Same thing. We're going to take a quick break. So when Kiese's mom makes that visit to Vassar, it ought to be a triumphant moment, a transcendent moment. He's done it, right? Her son is an accomplished, tenured professor, a published writer, a thin, elegant black man who speaks the king's English, all of which makes him untouchable, right? Right? Kiese's mother takes him shopping and insists on buying him expensive furniture for his home. He doesn't want her to do it, but she does. And then when she returns home to Jackson, she starts asking him for money. More and more money. And he begins to wonder if she has a gambling problem. I mean, it wouldn't surprise him. He could imagine anyone in his family being an addict. Crashing and flying. Crashing and flying. What he couldn't imagine was that his mother might be stealing from him. But then she asks him for money for house repairs. And something doesn't seem quite right. Nothing in the world she could ask me for that I would say no. Nothing. She could ask me for 50 Gs. If I had 49, I'd go get the other G from somebody and give it to her. And when that situation happened at the house, when she was asking me for some money to fix the foundation and to fix a chimney, um, it was the first time in my life I questioned. I was like, okay, well, can I just talk to the contractor guy so I can try to get the price down? And she hung up the phone. And then she calls back and she's like, Key, I need the money. You gonna give it to me or not? And I was like, uh... Mama, can I just talk to the person to see where the money's going? She hung up the phone again. So I called Grandma. Ma, Grandma, Mama said that the chimney's breaking and the foundation's messed up. Grandma was like, no, nah, I was just over there. Ain't nothing going on with that. I mean, thank goodness children can be this sort of like, I don't believe in innocence, but I think sometimes we can really believe that our parents would not attempt to do financial harm to us. And I don't know how to explain it, but like, ain't nothing in my heart broke like that in my life when I realized, oh, my mama, for for reasons that are beyond her, is stealing from me and stealing from my grandmama. The two people on earth who would never, ever, ever, 
ever steal from her, who would do anything possible to give to her. I didn't understand gambling addiction at the time. Kiese has no idea how long his mother's gambling has been going on. But as he thinks back through their history, it starts to make sense that it's been there for a long time in the background. After the whoopings, the beatings, the various kinds of abuse, this realization that his mother had been stealing from him makes him crazy. His word, that's how he describes it. He rethinks some of his history with her, and at the same time, his body is breaking down. He has herniated discs from all the punishing physical exertion and an abnormal growth on his left hip. But still, he tries to burn calories, moving his arms, trying to sweat, trying to control the life that's burning all around him. So one of the reasons I wrote that book was because I think my mother and my father have had, like lots of parents in this country, have had different relationships with addiction. But most of the ones I know have never attempted to publicly articulate that journey, not just for readers, but to people they love. I wrote, told her I was writing it to her. She told me she didn't think that was a good idea. I asked her lots of questions that we never talked about. She answered some. She didn't answer some. I'll talk to my grandmother. My grandmother pretty much answered all the questions that I that I had the nerve to ask. And then I just had all of this stuff. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to try to create a piece of art. Not like a tell-all. Because there's so much. Like the most traumatic stuff in that that I, that I think happened in that time period, the three most traumatic things are not in that book. But, you know, it's just like an artful rendering, but also an artful attempt to get us to love each other, to save each other, to not give our money away, to know that we're valuable enough to at least talk through pain, which is something I just think we are not good at. We don't know how to talk through pain. You alluded to it, but when when you realized that your, that your mother was trying to just basically steal from you, mm-hmm. that coincided with your body falling apart around that same time. Yeah. And then you began putting weight back on. Yeah. I mean, yes. That I mean, struck me yeah. as actually a good thing for you when I got to that part. It was like, oh, Key's going to let this go now. Like this form of masochistic, you know, self-destructive body punishing. Um, did it feel that way to you? No, in the moment it felt just shameful because everybody, because only people, because the people who knew me there, they only knew me as a skinny person. So they were just like, what's wrong with you? Do you know what I mean? And, and this is when like they, well, this is when I went from 159 to like 189 or 179. They'd be like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm good. What? That literally, I'm not going to, this is not hyperbole. That's just saved my life. By that shit, Kiese means the one-two punch of his body breaking down, and his discovery that his mom had been stealing from him. This was the lowest point at which it became possible to begin again. If my legs allowed me to, I would have run myself into disappearance, no doubt. And I, and so I did not get healthy because I started to, like, just try to punish myself with food. But I, I mean, shit, I, I wouldn't have been here right now had that not happened. I just want my mother and I to be better at loving one another. I want us both to be better at talking sincerely. I think sincerity is something that we don't talk about enough in this culture. Sincerely about joy. Sincerely about pain. The day before Kiese and I had this conversation, he received the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction. This award is a big deal in the literary world. 
and Kiese's mom was in the audience. As he accepted the award, he asked her to join him on stage. I wish I could have seen it, this remarkable mother and son who continue, because of everything, despite everything, to stumble toward one another in all their humanness. I wrote this book as an offering, being like, Mama, can we talk? And sometimes she says yes, and most of the time she says no, but at least Lisa's out there and we got an opportunity now. I'd like to thank my guest, Kiese Lehman, for telling his story. You can find out more about his book, Heavy, at kieselehman.com. That's K-I-E-S-E-L-A-Y-M-O-N.com. I'd also like to thank the Aspen Institute Arts Program and Aspen Words, where this interview was recorded. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer. Lowell Berlanti is the audio engineer. And Julie Douglas is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, you can get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer and Facebook at Family Secrets Pod, and Twitter at Fam Secrets Pod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease right here right now find your beautiful new floor at right rug flooring choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee visit rightrug.com that's r-i-t-e-r-u-g.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you 24-month financing is available with approved credit for 90 years we've been right here right now Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.